And turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verse 14. I had an introduction this morning at like 5 o'clock. And as I went through my sermon today, it was about Thanksgiving and Christmas and uh, how excited we get this time of year for those things and how excited Jesus was to... Anyways, I, I took all those notes out. And the reason is I had so much I wanted to cover today, I just don't think I had time. So uh, we are going to just jump right into the passage this morning. And um, I want to remind you where we were last week and where we left off. Uh, the priests and scribes in this portion of Scripture wanted Jesus dead at this point. But they couldn't find him at night because to arrest him quietly, and they didn't want to arrest him during the day because they were afraid of the people rioting. So Satan entered into Judas for him to betray Jesus to the priests and scribes. And Jesus, or Judas goes and makes a plan with the priests and, and scribes for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus at an opportune time, to lead them to Jesus at night where they could arrest Jesus quietly. But as this is all going on, we learned last week that Jesus knew exactly what was happening and was in complete control. Jesus knew that the priests, scribes, Satan, and even Judas were planning what they were planning. So he hid the location of the Passover meal, which is Thursday night and Friday night. We're in Thursday night right now in the passage we're at, and Friday will be the day that Jesus is crucified. So he hid this location because Jesus was going to have this last meal with his disciples. He was going to celebrate the Passover. And in so doing, this Passover and this portion of Scripture becomes a very significant event in the Gospels and in the history of of the church and Israel and the history of mankind. This becomes the last official Passover and the very first Lord's Supper. The last official Passover and the very first Lord's Supper. And that's kind of the outline this morning I'd like to go through. I'd like to go over the last Passover and what is Passover and and why it's significant. And then switch over to the very first Lord's Supper. So let's look at our text this morning. Luke 22, verse 14. The last official Passover. And when the hour came... He reclined at table and the apostles with him and began to say to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. That that part where he says, I earnestly desire, desire, you can't see it in English, but in the Greek, it's intensive and very forceful. It actually literally could be translated, with desire, I have desired. It's the strong desire. And Jesus had a strong desire to have this last Passover with his disciples, so much so that, that there was nothing that was going to stop it. Right? Not the priests, not the scribes, not Judas, not even Satan was going to interrupt this last meal that Jesus wanted to have with his disciples. Jesus' death was coming Friday, but Thursday night they were going to celebrate the Passover meal. He had a strong desire, I believe, as I've been studying this week for two reasons. Probably more than two reasons, but one for sure simply was he was just looking forward to spend time his last night with those he loved. The fellowship with those that he's been with for the, the last three years. 
and celebrate the Passover meal. But second, second, he wanted the disciples to see how the Old Testament pointed to him. Jesus has a passion as you go through the Gospels, especially the portion of the Gospels that we're going to be going through after the resurrection. Jesus has a passion of connecting the Old Testament to his ministry. We see this in Luke uh, 24, 27. You can turn there. It's just a couple pages probably over. This is on the road to Emmaus. Some of us are familiar with this passage. There's two disciples after Jesus' death and resurrection that are walking to Emmaus. And Jesus comes and hides his identity so they don't know it's him. And this is what he does. He, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. He sat with these disciples as they're walking Hiding his identity so they probably would pay attention to him. He went through the whole Old Testament showing how it pointed to him. And you imagine just how long that would take. Look over just probably a page or a few passages over to Luke 22, verse 44. Then he, Jesus, said to them, the disciples, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that's everything, the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. And we learn in Acts that Jesus spent 40 days with the disciples teaching about the kingdom of God. He taught that whole entire time with them about the kingdom of God. You better believe he taught through the Old Testament showing the disciples how the Old Testament pointed to him and the kingdom that he was bringing in. Jesus had a passion, a passion to teach the Old Testament, to teach that it pointed to him and teach that it was foundational to faith. Recently, unfortunately, a, a famous pastor with a huge church said that we need to unhitch the Old Testament from our faith. I don't want to be too hard on this pastor. He actually has an amazing ministry that has touched a lot of people and has done a lot of good. But he is wrong. He's not following Jesus' example. Jesus had a passion that his disciples would be hitched to the Old Testament. Not only that, that the Old Testament would be foundational to their faith. So the night before his death, he had a desire to celebrate the Passover because he wanted to teach the significance of the Passover. He wanted to show them the Old Testament pointing to him. So I want to quickly do that this morning. As we talk about the Passover and look at the Passover celebration, I want to, I want to do what Jesus did and, and point to the Old Testament, how it points to him. It's actually one of my passions, as I see Jesus has a passion, is just connecting Scripture together. So let's do that. I want, to, I want to have a deeper understanding of the Passover so that we can have a deeper understanding of the Lord's Supper. And I want to start at the beginning. Genesis. Genesis 3. If you could just turn to Genesis 3. which passes we go over a lot here, but it's so foundational to our faith that we need to go here a lot. Just some context. Genesis 1 and 2. God made everything. We know this just by speaking. He made everything well, right? He made everything really good. And he put man right in the center of this good creation. 
And not only that, he made man well. The, 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 the scriptures make it sound like he came down and formed man out of the dust with his own hands. He made man out of dust well. He made man good in his own image. And he breathed into man life. Then gave man everything. He says, have dominion. Here, explore, search. Look, live in this good creation. He gave him one command. Genesis 2, 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in that the day that you eat from it, you shall surely die. One command, one tree. Don't eat this one tree. Everything else is yours. Don't eat from this one tree. We know what happens, right? Man was tempted. And man sinned and fell. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eye and that the tree was to uh, to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. They sinned. They sinned. They they disobeyed this one command. And and what happens next? What happens? The first thing that happens next. Verse 7. Then their eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked. Right away, shame and guilt. They realized they were naked. You can contrast that to, to Genesis one twenty five, which says, "A man and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." Before sin, they were not ashamed; they were innocent. After sin, their innocence was gone, and they knew evil intimately. Their innocence was replaced with shame and guilt. And every man from that day forth has been born into that same state. And I want to be clear, this is not the feeling of guilt. Normally when we hear that word guilt, we just think of the feeling of guilt. We need to get rid of that feeling. No, this is true guiltiness. We are guilty, and the penalty is death. Right, the New and Old Testament make this very clear. Genesis 2.17 says, For in the day that you eat from it, when you sin, if you sin, this is what's going to happen, you will surely die. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin, what you're owed when you sin, the wages of sin is death. Right, right from the beginning, sin is a big deal. Sin equals death. And right from the beginning, man has tried to hide his guilt by his own efforts. Look at verse 7 again. The eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. They thought, okay, we're naked, we have shame and guilt, no big deal, we'll cover ourselves. It's not that big. We can, we can sew some leaves together and we can cover our, our shame and guilt and we'll be good. No one will know. Listen, the Bible is clear that our shame and guilt is too deep. We can't cover it ourselves. Sin is way too serious for us to try to cover it ourselves. 
The penalty of sin is death. That the day you eat from it, you will surely die. Death is too ultimate for finite beings to find a solution. Meaning only God can reconcile our problem. Only God can save us from the penalty of sin. And God makes that extremely clear in Genesis 3.20. Look at this this, uh, verse. Genesis 3.20 and 21. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God had to clothe their nakedness. It was God's effort that solved the problem. And why garments of skin? Well, because garments of skin showed Adam and Eve that, the only, that only death could cover or atone for their sins. I want you to just think about this for a second, how impactful this would have been for Adam and Eve. We, as a culture, and just living in a sinful, fallen world, have been desensitized to the realities of death. Movies, news, but just death that surrounds us. We see it all the time. Adam and Eve at this point has never seen death. Not an animal, not a plant, not even a bug. And God took an animal, I'm guessing a lamb, killed it in front of them. I, I was just wondering, I did this first service, I want to see your, your responses. Raise your hand if this is true for you. How many of you can remember the first time you saw an animal die? Raise your hand if you can remember the first time you saw the animal die. A lot. Don't laugh at me. Mine was a lizard. I said don't laugh. <laughs> I, I shot it with a BB gun. But I'm telling you, for how, how funny that is, and just you may picture a little kid out shooting his BB gun and, and hitting a lizard, it was impactful. I, I, to this day, vividly remember where I was standing, what the lizard looked like, and what happened. Can you imagine? Because God not only killed this animal, he skinned it. If you've ever been hunting... And skinned an animal. It's a dirty, graphic job. God took that skin and covered their nakedness. You know what that told Adam and Eve? Sin is a big deal. It is so big, it is so ugly, that no human effort could cover it. Only God could cover man's nakedness. And only through death God can't just forgive. I hear that all the time. God will just forgive my sins. He's too holy and too just just to forgive. The wages of sin is death. Death has to be paid. Fast forward a few hundred years to a father and son named Abraham and Isaac. Turn to Genesis 22, verse 1. It says this in verse 1, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
Go offer your son to me. This is such a controversial passage in scripture that throughout Western civilization, there has been theologians, non-believers, all types of people that struggle with this passage. Struggle with this passage. You know who didn't struggle with this passage? Abraham. And the only way that makes sense is if you, if you understand uh, why God would ask a firstborn son. And what's the significance of, his, of, of a son? The family's wealth and honor was tied into the head of the family, which would be the father. But that wealth and honor was always passed down to the firstborn son. Therefore, the firstborn son represented the family's future. It represented the family as a whole. So when God asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, Abraham didn't argue. Abraham understood God's justice demanding a payment for the sins of the family. And he knew payment for sin is death. It's clear in the Old and New Testament. So Isaac would be the payment. But here's something else. Abraham also knew about God's mercy. Right? And he had faith in the mercy of God. He believed that God somehow would save his son. Right? Hebrews eleven nineteen even says that he considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead. In other words, he thought somehow God's going to save Isaac, maybe raise him from the dead after he dies. But I'm trusting God. In other words, Abraham understood God's justice. The payment of sin is death. But he put his faith in God's mercy that he would raise him from the dead maybe. Leads to verse 9, Genesis 22, verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood on the in, or wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord uh, cried to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, um, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Abraham sacrificed a ram instead of his son. The ram took the place of his son, Isaac. The ram became a substitute for the son. In other words, God's justice was poured out on the ram so that God's mercy could be poured out on Isaac. Abraham put his faith and trust in a good place. Therefore, verse 14 says, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. Just like Adam and Eve, the Lord will provide a covering. God will provide the substitute. There's two things that we've learned as you're going through Scripture at this point in Scripture in Genesis very early on. First, the penalty of sin is death, right? Sin is a big deal. 
penalty is death. Adam and Eve saw this firsthand. An animal died with skin to cover their, their guiltiness and their shame. But the second thing we learn is that there can be a substitute. The ram took the place of Isaac. God's justice was poured out on the ram so that God's mercy could be poured out on Isaac and his family. Which finally leads us to the Passover, and I think this back story and context of of the scriptures gives us a better understanding of Exodus 11, if you would turn there, and the Passover in Exodus. And just so we know the context, most of us know this story, but let's just walk through it. God's people, there's a people now, are in slavery, and God calls Moses to go to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh, "Let, let this people, his people, go, and Pharaoh says, no. Who is this God? And Exodus 7 through 12, God shows Pharaoh who he is. That he's a powerful God and a wrathful God with nine devastating plagues. Each a judgment, each against a false God, each against false worship, each showing Egypt, Israel, and the world that there is one God and he is a just God. Meaning he will not just let sin go unpunished. Which leads us to Exodus 11 and 12. The 10th and most devastating plague of them all. The death of the firstborn. Why the firstborn again? Well, remember, Abraham and Isaac. The firstborn was the family. One commentator put it this way. When God brought judgment on Egypt, his ultimate punishment was taking the lives of their firstborn. Their firstborn's lives were forfeit because of the sins of the family and of the nation. Why? Because the firstborn was the future hope of the family and in essence was the family. The death of the firstborn pointed to judgment on the family and on the nation. But here's a question. I always ask the question. You guys wonder what I do all week. I just ask questions. (laughs) Try to bring that out and go, why this? So if that's what you do, that's great. Especially if you do it with reverence, expecting an answer somewhere, or being okay if there isn't an answer, but just trusting the Lord. I feel like asking questions, and I'm like, okay, well, I I get the judgment part. That makes sense. We're seeing this. uh, Sin equals death, right? That, That makes some sense to me. Why not Israel? They're a sinful nation. And Old Testament's clear on that. Stiff necked people. God, you see his frustration over and over and over and over and over and over. That's the whole Old Testament, right? They're far from perfect. How does Israel get grace? You know, there's even a point in Judges where you could take the parallel story of the end of Judges and it mirrors Sodom and Gomorrah, and that's Israel. For how horrible everyone thinks Sodom and Gomorrah is, Israel did the same exact thing as a nation. And God does not wipe them off the face of the earth. Why? Well, the answer's in Genesis or Exodus 12, verse 1. It says this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be uh, for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to the father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, 
Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, uh, you shall make it or make your count for, uh, for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall uh, keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. A lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb, you're going to kill it. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the on two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. Take the blood from the lamb, put it on the doorpost. It's a, a very vivid, clear picture of death. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you. That's where we get the word Passover from. I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. In other words, when I see that blood of the lamb on the doorpost, my judgment will not fall on you. It will pass over you. My grace will be poured out on you. But if I don't see that blood of the lamb... My grace will will not fall on you. It will pass over you. And my judgment will. So, only those, get this, Old Testament was faith, not works. Only those that truly believed in God had faith and had enough faith to act. They killed the lamb, put the blood on the doorpost, and through that faith they were saved from God's judgment. I just want to say this morning, if you've never put your faith in Christ and his death, which we'll be talking about soon, we're Thursday, Friday, and the, the gospel message, just read ahead, he died for your sins. If you have not put your faith in him, don't leave this room without doing that. God's judgment is looming. I want to just be honest what scripture says. It's exactly what happened to Egypt. They received God's Justice, his judgment, his wrath. The wages of sin is death, and that's what they received. Israel received God's mercy through their faith. The Passover lamb took the wages of death. So the Passover lamb told the Israelites two things. First, sin is a big deal. Right, sin is a big deal. Man, since the beginning, has said it's not that big of a deal. God will just forgive me. No, the Bible says sin is a big deal. The wages of sin is death. But the good news is, is there can be a substitute. A lamb. And the story ends. We know the story. Israel is saved from Egypt. They end up in the promised land that God promised the nation. They become a nation. And God commands them to celebrate what happened. He wanted them to remember what happened in Egypt. He wanted them to remember the Passover and the Passover lamb. And so he called this celebration the Passover. Once a year, families from all over the world would come to Jerusalem, celebrate the Passover by sacrificing a lamb, eating the Passover meal, and remembering what happened in Egypt. It was a celebration 
a joyful celebration of God's grace and salvation. That's why I was going to talk about Christmas. It just reminds you, and I love Christmas. I can picture that everyone loving the Passover meal. And, and that's what Jesus and his disciples are celebrating Thursday night before his death. But before we go back to Luke, I, I have another question. Here's my other question. Can a lamb truly take away the sins of a family? I mean, isn't the Bible clear that animal life isn't as valuable as human life? How can a lamb pay the penalty if the penalty is death? Well, the answer is it doesn't. Hebrews 10.4 makes it very clear. It says, For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The animal that covered Adam and Eve in the garden didn't truly take away their shame and guilt. The ram caught in the thicket didn't truly replace Isaac so that the sins of the family were paid for. And the Passover lambs and all the lambs sacrificed in in Israel's history, thousands and thousands if not millions of lambs, did nothing to pay for the wages of sins of Israel. Hebrews 10 make very clear that these are just shadows or types of a reality that was to come. They just pointed forward to the true Passover lamb. The lamb of God. It all just pointed to Jesus. Right? He was the perfect unblemished lamb. He was killed for our sins. He was the firstborn of God who was actually sacrificed for the sins of the family, those that have been adopted into his family. Only for those that have faith in him. The Passover lamb pointed to the true lamb of God. And Jesus, Thursday night, wanted to make this clear as he was heading to the cross as a sacrifice. So turn back to Luke twenty-two sixteen for me. Old Testament points to Jesus. He wanted his disciples to have their faith grounded in Scripture, not experience, not anything else. He wanted his, his, his disciples to have their faith grounded in Scripture, and they wanted them to know that this whole entire festival you've been celebrating, and Israel's been celebrating for thousands of years, all pointed to him. But he also wanted them to have hope in the future. He earnestly desired to eat this Passover, land, Passover meal with them because, verse 16, For I tell you, I will not eat until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. The Passover meal, if you're not familiar with, lasts for hours. Israelites knew how to, to party. This lasts for hours, and they would celebrate for hours. I guess Christmas morning, so it lasts for hours for some of us. Um, and they would drink four different cups of wine, symbolizing four different things uh, throughout the celebration. And in verse 18, it seems like from, from what everyone can tell that this was the first cup, that Jesus grabbed the first cup of wine And he drank it and he said, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God has come. And in so doing that, in so saying that, he he was proclaiming that this was the last official Passover ever. 
until they fellowship again in a future kingdom. He's telling his disciples, because of my suffering and death that's about to happen in just a day, we will one day celebrate like this again in eternity. Jesus was saying, this is the last official Passover ever in this age till we meet again in the age to come and celebrate. But he didn't leave the disciples without a a way to remember. Remember, the Passover was always to remember what happened in so pointing forward to the true Passover lamb. So the Passover pointed back and forward. In a very similar way, Jesus left the disciples with a way of remembering. Now that we have a clearer picture of the Passover lamb, Jesus wants us to remember his sacrifice. And so Jesus turns the Passover into the first communion ever, or the first Lord's Supper ever. Look at verse 19 with me. This is the first Lord's Supper. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're familiar with those words. He took the bread of the Passover meal, the unleavened bread. He broke it. He said, this is my body. This represents me. Remember this. It is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of what I've done for you. We don't sacrifice lambs anymore because we have a clearer picture of the, the, the true lamb of God. And you can look at what Jesus did on the cross and see how, how big of a deal sin is. We have seen and heard from the true lamb. So we're commanded instead to fellowship over bread. Remembering it was broken for our sins. That Jesus took the wrath, guilt, and shame we deserve so that God's wrath would pass over us. And God's mercy and grace would be poured out on us. Theologians call this the substitutionary atonement. You may have heard of that word. It's a fancy word. Um, very simple meaning. It just means where where Jesus took our punishment we deserve, he became our substitute so that he and God could atone for our sins and that we could be forgiven through that. God just won't forgive. The payment had to be paid and Jesus took that payment so that he could forgive. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter two twenty four. God for, for our sake or for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Jesus gave his body as a substitute. Remember the Old Testament, very clear. Sin is a big deal, and there can be a substitute. Jesus is our substitute. Verse 20. And likewise, the cup after... Or, and likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup uh, that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. 
This is another declaration of Jesus' death. Jesus was poured out for our salvation. Jesus, with the disciples, the night before his death, celebrated the last official Passover ever till the age, till the age to come. But he also celebrated with them the first Lord's Supper ever. And here's the interesting thing. Remember I said there was four cups of wine in the Passover meal? Everyone that I've read agrees. They, they think, they're not 100% sure. Everyone is pretty sure that it was the third cup that, that Jesus introduced the new covenant by saying, this cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. The third cup he grabbed, he didn't drink the fourth cup. And there's nothing in, in the Gospels that make it sound like he drank the fourth cup. Why? And what's significant about the fourth cup that he didn't drink it? Well, the fourth cup, if you look at the tradition of the Passover in Jesus' day, pointed to a future blessing. After you drank it, you recited, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Reminding, uh, remembering of the Passover, but looking forward to that day when this would be true. Here's what I think, and this is just a guess. I think Jesus is waiting to drink that fourth cup till the fellowship with him in the age to come, that we will all be there at the table dining with him. Luke twenty two eighteen says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom has come. I believe one day Jesus will drink that fourth cup with us, and he will say, I have taken you as my people, and I am your God. Therefore, the Lord's Supper communion not only points back to what Jesus does, did, but it is a celebration. It's looking forward to the day we will fellowship with Jesus and enjoy a time together with him. It points to the future. It's a celebration. Right? It's appropriate that we examine ourselves, look at our sins, and ask for forgiveness but the Lord's Supper tells us we're forgiven. It should be joy-filled. <laughs> and that one day, because we're forgiven, we will be with Jesus in eternity. So what can we learn from this passage? Well, I think we can learn a little bit more about the Lord's Supper by examining the Scriptures as a whole. But there's a few other things, too. First of all, I just want to say, Jesus doesn't want to be unhitched from the Old Testament. Even though we're no longer under the Old Covenant, Jesus wants us to learn from the Old Testament. He had a passion, as we will see. It'll be clear. He had a passion that the disciples knew the Old Testament and how it all points to him. So we shouldn't ignore it, dismiss it, or even be embarrassed by it. We should study it and learn from it. But second, God wants us to remember You guys see that? He wants us to remember. Old Testament festivals were commanded. That's pretty incredible to me. I mean, think about that. A festival, a celebration, a party was commanded. Why? Because God didn't want Israel to forget. He didn't want them to forget. In a similar way, communion or the Lord's Supper, our celebration that we have each month, is commanded because he doesn't want us to forget. 
God has a desire that we remember. That should tell us something. We have a tendency to forget. Have you ever met someone, or maybe this is you, that was just on fire when they were first saved and understand God's grace that was poured out on them to lose that passion over time? Forgetting? God knows that we forget. That's why we meet. You guys have heard the gospel. I don't know how many times. None of this is new to you. It's to remember. Not even to learn anything new. It's to remember. It's why I repeat myself over and over and over again. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. We need to hear God's word over and over and over again. We need to hear the gospel over and over and over again. We need a weekly, at least a weekly reminder. Hebrews 10, 24 says this, let us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as some are the habit, but encouraging one another, and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Okay, so the early church, they met at least weekly. Sunday mornings, that's what the tradition we have kept. They met Sunday mornings, which is the Lord's Day when he rose from the dead. Instead of meeting Saturdays, they would meet Sundays, and we've kept that tradition. They at least met weekly. You hear what it says in this verse? It says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. I see the day drawing near, right? At least closer than the early church 2,000 years ago. Get involved in the church. Meet. Remember here over and over and over again. And yes, I'll repeat myself over and over and over again. We need God. We need to hear and remember. It leads me lastly to, to, to the fact that God wants us to fellowship. Don't you see that? Both the Passover and the Lord's Supper are community events. Right? God wants us in a community committed to a community. I mean, think about this. It's just kind of... I thought about this the other day. Both the Old Testament and New Testament, when you were saved, you were saved into a community. Old Testament, Israel, New Testament, church. God wants us in the community. And I just want to be clear. Please don't email me. I'm not thinking of anyone as I say this. I just, this is what I think when I, when I hear this fellowship that Jesus so badly wants with his disciples, that he wants us to fellowship. He wants us to be in a community. And one of the reasons that is, is because communities sanctify us. If you're in community long enough, people are going to start seeing your warts. And you're going to start seeing other people's warts. You know what? That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Every new members class, I say this again, repeat myself over and over again. You're, if you join this church and you become a member and if you get involved in the community, you will be sinned against at some point. I promise you, you will get sinned against. You know why? We're full of sinners here, right? And, and don't leave this church because I said that. Every church is full of sinners. <laughs> You're going to get sinned against. You're going to get hurt, right? It's going to happen. And you know what? You're probably going to sin against someone and hurt someone. If you're in a community long enough, warts and sins will start coming out. And I just want to be clear, not just other people's warts, but our own. 
your own words. You know how I know a Christian is a mature Christian? You know how I know a Christian is a mature Christian? It's not age. I've seen some young Christians that are mature Christians. It's not age. You know how I know a Christian is a mature Christian? It's when I'm talking with them, they are more concerned and worried about their own warts than others. They, they are more focused on their own sins than the sins that have been committed to them. And even when sins have been committed to them, their first thought is, what did I do? What, what's going on in my heart? How am I responding to this? How can I love this person? That's a mature Christian. I'm far from it. But I've seen them in our church. It's amazing to watch those people. No matter what, they're looking at themselves, not others. Listen, deep fellowship, deep fellowship will bring out warts. You know why? So we can work on them. Sadly, I feel that I see this in Tehachapi all the time, and I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I've talked to, I don't know, because I've been in Tehachapi my whole life, so this might just be normal everywhere, but I've talked to pastors that have come here from other, other areas, and they're like, well, this is crazy how this happens so much. Uh, people, instead of working on their own warts, leave the community. You'll never grow by doing that. Right when those warts start coming out, right? Right when you start getting frustrated with others in the community, right? You hit the sweet spot. That's where you grow. Don't leave. I've been a part of this church now 26 years. It's hard to believe. I moved here when I was nine, and I've been in this church ever since. I wasn't planning that, but... God had different plans than me, and you better believe I've been frustrated with people, with leadership, with worship, with the color of the walls, with my computer. 98% of the time, it's sin in my own heart I need to deal with, not the person or thing or wall that I'm frustrated with. It's my own sin, and honestly, I was thinking about this, it's probably 100% of the time, and it's my own sin that says 98% of the time. When I've dealt with it, instead of running from it, I've grown. Deep, intimate fellowship in a local body brings growth, and that only happens with effort, and usually years of effort. It's a means of grace by God, and that sweet fellowship in a local church won't happen. Listen, if all you do is come Sunday mornings, hear a sermon and leave, and that's all you do. Get in a small group. Get to a place where you're serving. Get to know other people in your body. Grow. God wants us in the community. First, because it sanctifies us. It's a good thing. It's a means of grace. But second, and I just want to make this clear and we're done. It reflects the glory of God to a lost world. God is a God of community. He's not, a, uh, he's not lonely. He's not a duality. He's a, tri, tri, a trinity. Right? He's not an individual. He's not a couple. He is a community. And when we come together with one mind in love, we reflect that to the society around us. We reflect that to Tehachapi. Right? Let's have deep, intimate fellowship. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, I thank you, Lord, for who you are.
God, as I go through this passage and, and see the sacrifice you made for us, Lord, see that, that Jesus was the true Passover lamb, I am just in awe, Lord. But I also see how important fellowship is to you. I, I love the verse that Ross uh, spoke this morning. For the joy and set before you, you endured the cross. In other words, the fellowship that you had Thursday night, that joy you had with those that you love was so joy-filled that you said, I will go to the cross because I want that again in eternity. Let us have that deep, rich fellowship, Lord. Let us be patient with each other. Talk about, talk about someone that's been sinned against. You're the example that we should have in a community. All the disciples sinned against you. Judas sinned against you. And there was no frustration or anger that came out of your heart because there is no frustration or anger in your heart. Even when we get sinned against, Lord, help us to examine our own heart first. Pull out the log out of our heart before we pull out the splinter in our brother's eye. Just pray that you're with us, Lord, in that. In your son's name, amen.